Okay, good evening, everyone. Excellent. And thank you to uh, uh, to uh, Soundless, who is just playing uh, a, uh, a wonderful rendition of Tom Bombadil's poem, which we're just about to start talking about uh, in, uh, in Lotro's really fun uh, music. Uh, I don't even know what to call it. But the, the you know the way that the the way that you can do music in game it's really fun. Um, so thank you so much uh, for the pre-class minstrelsy here this evening, uh, and welcome back to exploring the Lord of the Rings. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and we are ready to return. Uh, and we're going to finish Chapter Six today. That's totally going to happen. Uh, so I'm excited about that, and I am excited to talk more about Tom Bombadil. We met Tom Bombadil last week. Uh, we spent more time than I expected talking about his first three lines of poetry, which is great because we have a good deal more of Tom's verse to talk about here tonight. And that's indeed what we're going to jump in uh, and start with right away. Uh, so tonight, tonight's class is called A Mighty Singer, uh, uh, which of course Tom Bombadil is going to refer to Old Man Willow as a mighty singer, uh, but... Um, uh, but of course, Tom Bombadil himself is quite a mighty singer, uh, and uh, it's going to be Tom Bombadil as singer in large part that we're going to be looking at here tonight. We may get as far as Goldberry, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, just a quick uh, uh, for people who are joining, like you know, I, I, I kind of take for granted the uh, uh, the the interface mechanisms for this because we've been doing this now for almost eight months. Um, but let me just do a, a quick refresher. I'm broadcasting this in two different places on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash is the name of Signum University's Twitch channel, and so I'm broadcasting on Twitch there. Um, I'm also broadcasting live on Twitter for people for whom that's easier to catch me mobily uh, on Twitter, so uh, I'm there as well. Uh, we, However, so I'm looking at... I'll, I'll try to look at Twitter comments as they come in. I will try to look at uh, the I'll try some to look at the Twitch uh, comments as they come through. Uh, though when you guys get talking to each other a lot, I, I can't always keep up with all of those things. Um, but the primary place where I am taking uh, uh, comments for the class is on our Discord channel. Uh, so you can see, if you go to our Twitch channel, you can see uh, the link to that. Um, if somebody would uh, would pop that link up there again, do the do the exclamation point Discord thing, I think. Isn't that, isn't that how it works? Uh, to get our... Yeah, I think There it is, it. yeah. That's the one. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, so you just click on that link there on the Twitch chat uh, to uh, the Discord channel, and here we go. Uh, we will get to... Um, and so then this is where... So when you hear me... Uh, uh, relying on people's comments uh, and stuff, uh, then we, uh, that's, that's, that's where I'm, I'm mostly getting them, is on, uh, uh, is on the Discord chat. I see the people in the Discord chat currently are warming up by trying, which is with an excellent question, and indeed I'm glad you guys anticipated this crucial question, uh, because I am, uh, uh, it would certainly have come up, and that is, what is the adjectival form of Bombadil? Is it uh, Bombadilic? Bombadilic? Bombadilish. Uh, I tend to side with Gilglear on this. I think Bombadilian uh, is really is really clearly the correct adjectival form there. Uh, though Tom, I agree that uh, Bombadilitudinous is always. Uh, 
uh, is, I mean, that's that's attractive. It has obvious attractions, right? But um, uh, but I think uh, I think I'm gonna go with Bombadilian uh, there. Uh, so th- so there we are. Okay. So without further ado, let's jump in. We actually had a quiet week, uh, relatively quiet week on the uh, uh, discussion boards this week. Um, where some there were several uh, comments made, which I think we're gonna we're gonna get to here uh, in the natural course of things uh, during our discussion here tonight. So we're gonna jump straight into the poetry, which is awesome. So here is Tom Bombadil's when he comes around the corner with a leap and a bound. He sings this his primary poem. Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling. Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. Down along, under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing, comes hopping home again. Can you hear him singing? Hey, come merry doll, dairy doll, and merry-o, goldberry, goldberry, merry yellow berry-o, poor old willow man, you tuck your roots away, Tom's in a hurry now, evening will follow day, Tom's going home again, water lilies bringing, hey, come dairy doll, can you hear me singing? Okay, now, what do you notice about the verse, first of all? I said last time when we were looking at the first three lines, I wanted to hold off discussion of the, the, the sort of the shape of the, the sound shape of the poem, right? The, the, the overall metrical shape of the poem until we got uh, to this point. Um, uh, I wanted to get the full verse before we really talked about the rhythm. What do you notice about it? It's different, right, from the Hobbit poetry that we've seen. What do you notice? There are some lines that are quite regular and rhythmic, like Goldberry, Goldberry, Merry Yellow Berry O, right? That's pretty, that's pretty fluid, right? Pr- pretty regular. Um, it is definitely, I agree, Lady Shmabiwak, it's definitely different uh, from the, uh, uh, from the, uh, it's from the elf meter, definitely different from the hobbit meter. Right, and yeah, it is. It is trochaic, not iambic. Um, so the sound of it—that's the thing that makes the sound so fundamentally different. Um, think about the Hobbit poetry that we have heard so far. Um, so basically, you know, the, as you know, for those of you who don't spend a lot of time uh, scanning poetry, and I don't know why people don't spend a lot of time scanning poetry, but for those of you who don't spend a, long, uh, a lot of time uh, scanning poetry, I would, um, you know, j- just sort of remind you that there are the two fundamental elements of the, the, the that sort of characterize the sound of a poem, right? First is uh, how, what kind of poetic foot it predominantly uses, and second, how many of those feet uh, are in a line, right? So f- the, the first word of the poetic meter describes the overall sound pattern, and then the, the, the second one describes the length of the line, essentially, right? So the Hobbit poetry that we read, all of the Hobbit poetry that we read so far, is in iambic tetrameter. Uh, so the general shape is iambic, and four, four feet, four iambic feet per line. Uh, and the iambic sound uh, is unstressed stress. Bum 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 
bum bum. And iams are the most basic object. English naturally forms itself into iams. It's the most uh, sort of natural native meter of the English language. Um, uh, however, trochee is different, right? Trochee is backwards from iams. So it goes stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed. Um, and so it gives the line a different feel uh, from iams. Right? Instead of going bum 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 bum, it goes bum 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 bum. And you can hear this most clearly in the ring poem. Remember, we looked at the ring poem, and I was emphasizing this at the time how most of the poem is in a basically trochaic shape except for the ring lines, which are iambic, right? The, the part that's an actual quote from Sauron, right? Um, one ring to rule them all, right? To, you know, the one ring is, those are, that's called spondy, but it's, it's you know, two uh, even syllables at the beginning. Ominous, evil, uh, uh, stressed syllables at the beginning of the line, right? But then a clear iambic beat, to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them, right? So that's a, that, that, that's sinister uh, iams there. Um, but then, so just listen to the last two lines of the ring poem, right? To bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Hear the difference? To bring them all and in the darkness bind them. That's iambic. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. That's trochaic, right? The stress is at the beginning. In the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. And you can hear the difference, right? The one iams, when iams are smooth and regular, it's very, it's very bouncy, right? It's very um, smooth and fluid. Uh, it can get very um, incantatory, very, very, uh, uh, very melodic, right? Very soothing. You can do it in different ways, but but that's sort of the tendency. Trochaic is much is much sharper. It's bouncier. It's almost never smooth and fluid. Um, it's funny because, you know, it's still just alternating stresses and unstressed, right? But it has a really a quite different uh, effect. Um, Tom's verse is uh, trochaic, right? Um, and it tends to start with actually uh, spondaic syllables, those like uh, evenly stressed syllables. Hey, come merry doll, right? The, all three of the, the first three syllables are all stressed, right? Hey, come merry doll, dairy doll, my darling. Um, notice the, 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 the words, um, the, wor- the, the, the choice of meter uh, influences the word choice that the poet can use, right? And you'll notice a lot of words that Tolkien uses in Tom Bombadil's poems I mean, you know, the English words, the normal English words, uh, not the nonsense words, um, which, you know, have the stress on the first syllable and then an unstressed, so even really, really simple words, right? You just look at, like, merry, darling, weather, feathered, shining, sunlight, waiting, doorstep, starlight, right? Pretty, lady, woman, daughter, slender, right? All of those words are deploy, you know, are, are chosen simple two-syllable, common two-syllable words with a stress. And now, of course, it's not that you can't use those words in an iambic verse, right? You can, um, uh, but, uh, but he, he, the way that he deploys them, you know, you, you want to line them up on the beats, basically, and that's what Tom Bombadil does. 
light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. But you'll notice that it, none of it is... No, so remember when we were looking at the Hobbit walking song? Uh, the one where they're walking in step? I know we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, and it, it becomes really... You, you can hear the beat, right? You, you can hear the marching beat. Um, that, you know, because it gets pretty regular, right? That they would have been marching along to in step. This verse doesn't work that way, right? Not only because it's trochaic, but also because it's much more, it's not regular trochaic meter, right? It has all those spondies in it. There are, there are, um, um, uh, there are lots of, um, um, there are lots of, of places where, where it does heavy beats in a row, right? Just skipping, uh, or replacing the uh, the unstressed syllables, and again, that's that's it's it's in fact classic to the to the shape of the line. Old Tom Bombadil, right? Um, old Tom Bombadil. That pattern of starting each line with three stresses, right, in a row. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing. Um, but again, you notice how those last three words, water lilies bringing. Right, all have the stress on the first syllable. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing. Um, and yeah, Gilgalir, exactly. You, you don't march to Tom's meter, you skip to it. You skip and you dance and you hop to it. It's a much more active, it's hard to read regularly. Um, it's one of those, I feel awkward, I always feel awkward reading Tom Bombadil's poetry um, because uh, it, it definitely feels like something that should be sung. Um, but I don't have a melody to it, uh, and I'm not talented enough to make one up for myself. Uh, uh, and I, I've never... I don't know that many melodies to it. Um, uh, anyway, so it's... Uh, so so I, I, I'm not going to sing it, because uh, I don't know a good melody to it. Um, but, um, but anyway, it certainly is... Um, uh, is an active line, right? And you'll notice also that it's very common for the lines to break in the middle, right? It's not every line, right? Um, but a lot of... There, there are comparatively few lines that go straight through, right? Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling is one, though even that has a break with a conjunction in the middle, right? Um, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight... Um, it has the Tom Bombadil's verse always has the feeling to me of half lines, right? Of sort of two half, not not necessarily with a formal caesura or break in the middle, but they tend to break in the middle. Comes hopping home again. Can you hear him singing? Um, Goldberry, Goldberry, Merry Yellow Berry O. Right? There are clearly two halves of that line. Um, Poor old Willow Man, you tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening will follow day. Um, almost every line has some kind of, uh, uh, again, if not a break, um, some kind of, it sort of splits into logical halves. Um, there's, there's very little in the way of, like, continued phrasing, um, necessarily. So, um, uh, yeah, anyway, it's, um, it's tricky. Now, Tony... Tony just brought up the uh, the tune that uh, Rob Inglis sings in the audiobook. And, uh, Tony, I, I like it in many ways. Um, I'm not a huge fan uh, of it. And the reason that I'm not a huge fan of it is that... 
I think that the person who wrote that melody didn't think very carefully through the natural uh, rhythm of the lines. Uh, the melody that they that he sings uh, to the Tom Bombadil uh, 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 songs is at times kind of at war with the natural sound of the line, in my opinion. In particular, it doesn't have a trochaic feel. It, melodically, it rises at the end. Um, Light goes the weather, wind, and the feathered starling, he says, right? It always does that. At the Rob Inglis's version, the one that he sings, always does that at the end of the lines, right? Um, shining in the sun, shi- sh- uh, not, actually not the sunlight line, um, but the starling, right, is, a, is, a, is, is one. He very much does it. But it's not, that's not it, right? That's not what the stress is. The, 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 the melody is designed as if to fit an iambic poem, right? That rises at the end, but it doesn't rise. It falls at the end. It's trochaic. Um, the, the, the melodic emphasis is on the ling in starling when clearly the rhythmic uh, 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 emphasis is on star in starling. So I, I just, and there are a bunch of times uh, like that. Um, um, you know, even like when you talk your roots away, he says, right? Uh, no, that's not right. It doesn't go that way. Um, uh, so I, um, I, I have a, I have a hard time with it. Again, it, it, it feel, whenever I hear him singing it, it feels like it's a song at war with itself. And Tom Bombadil should be totally comfortable with himself. So that's what I dislike uh, about that. The Tolkien Ensemble one, um, I like. I like it okay. Um, the Tolkien Ensemble version, and you can, if you want to hear a copy of that, it was just posted uh, to uh, the chat there in Discord. You can also get it. Uh, Tim Fisher posted it um, in the uh, discussion board uh, as well. I like it okay. Um, it's uh, the Tolkien Ensemble. Uh, it's a little too, I don't know, stiff for me, for the Tom Bombadil stuff. Tom, ba- Tom Bombadil is not that formal uh, as the tone that they kind of achieve, I think. But anyway, um, uh, yes, Tillian, who's new, good. Uh, I don't remember uh, seeing your comments before, Tillian, uh, says uh, uh, that uh, he likes to imagine Tom Bombadil as a jazz scat cat type. You know, honestly, closer to that, I think. The only... Um, uh, as as long as it's got a good sense of rhythm, right? Um, you know, some uh, some jazz improv people will play, you know, kind of loose uh, with rhythm. Tom is Tom is rhythmic, right? Because you got to make sure you can dance to it, right? Uh, as long as you can dance to it, it's it's that's fine. Um, but uh, Tony, yeah, I would love to hear a new version of it. Uh, you record it, I'll play it. Uh, I would I would love to I would love to do that. Um, yeah. Um, and Bru- uh, Bruiner, yeah, I think the Tolkien Ensemble eventually got around to pretty much all of Lord of the Rings songs, almost all anyway. Uh, at least I've heard versions of a lot of them and a lot of the, the Hobbit songs. Um, and I find generally, I, I find the Tolkien Ensemble better on Elvish songs than Hobbit songs. Um, uh, some of them I like quite a lot, but um, uh, anyway. Um, the other... So, how long is the line? We talked about the, the, the foot and the importance of the foot. The trochaic foot rather than the iambic foot. Um, 
What about the uh, the length of the line? And this is tricky because again, the lines are not really regular, right? Um, the thing to do is not just to sort of start at the beginning, read it through, and find the lines that sound most regular, right? Um, uh, so I would point to waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. That's a pretty regular line. Um, or goldberry, goldberry, merry yellow berry-o. Um, uh, let's, let's stick with waiting on this doorstep for the cold starlight. Waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. Six beats. Count, count the beats, right? Count the stress syllables is the easiest way uh, to figure it. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, old Tom... Oh, okay, well, okay. Or maybe I chose a bad line. You guys are yelling at me. Both Tom and Gogli are both saying uh, heptameter, and I chose a hexameter line, uh, and they're not liking it. Uh, so let's keep reading. Slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Old Tom Bombadil, water lilies bringing. Right, you gotta, you gotta count both beats in Bombadil, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, see, good, see? That's what you have to do. You always have to read more than one line, right? See, I chose a poor line, or always read it poorly. Um, yes, the fundamental pattern is heptameter, which is interesting, right? Tetrameter is the Hobbit line. Um, iambic tetrameter. Heptameter, as we'll see, is much more typical of um, um, is much more typical of elf poetry. Uh, we'll see a lot of elf poetry that has sevens in it. Um, this is like elf poetry. But it sounds completely different from elf poetry because elf poetry is iambic and Tom Bombadil's uh, trochaic. So yeah, exactly, Tom. It's like the inverse of elf meter. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Matt, Matt says uh, he'd argue it's six and a half with the with the cesura playing a role in several lines. You know, I, I kind of incline towards that actually, Matt. I mean, I don't want to get too technical with it. It doesn't matter all that much. Um, but uh, there is, a, of course, a historical reason, right, why this particular line is interesting. This particular meter is interesting. Um, because this is the meter of the Kalevala. Um, you know, if you go back and you read, of course, the fam most famous uh, English imitation, okay, second most famous, because let's face it, Tom Bombadil is more famous now, but uh, the second most famous <laughs> English imitation of the Kalevala meter uh, is uh, uh, Longfellow's uh, Hiawatha poem. Um, and if you, it, his meter is very regular, uh, and he tries to capture the, the rhythmic feel uh, of the finished line, of the Kalevala line. Um, Tolkien, of course, loved the Kalevala. Loved it. Um, the Kalevala was one of the most influential works that Tolkien ever read. I mean, that's that's pretty strong, right? Pretty strong language there. Um, but he was as influenced by the Kalevala as by anything else that he that he that he read. People talk about uh, a lot. People talk about you know his connection with Norse mythology, and surely he loved Norse stuff. He loved the Finnish stuff uh, just as well. And the Finnish stuff is quite different 
uh, from the old Norse stuff, the the old uh, Germanic mythology. Um, and Tom Bombadil is just about as sort of straight out of the Kalevala as anything in Tolkien. Uh, and it's announced in the in his meter, in the way that he speaks. He sounds like the Kalevala, and he acts in many ways like the Kalevala. Um, uh, people were... T- uh, he is... Li- the, the, the character that he is like is Vinamoinen, the, 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 the great singer. Um, there is, a, there is a, a, a place in the Kalevala um, when Vinamoinen gets into a singing competition uh, with a young upstart, um, and they like you know they'll sing up a wind and all these other you know, just like Tom Bombadil's you know about to threaten to do anyway, um, and eventually one of them is defeated and the other one carries on. Um, Vinamoinen wins, um, so that kind of that kind of thing, right? That kind of uh, 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 concept. Of course, many of you, very naturally and very appropriately, when Tom Bombadil comes and and we we've we've heard we've talked about the the song battle, right? This battle of will and battle of song that we've seen uh, from between the trees, you know, spell and counterspell between Frodo and the trees. Um, but um, anyway, that was you know we we've been talking about that. Here we finally get song uh, sung back, right? And this sort of uh, final. Um, final battle um uh yeah so anyway so that's um uh that's a that's clearly a a a major inspiration for Tolkien here and uh yes uh Lynn Longfellow was purposefully informed by the Kalevala he he went like went to Finland and everything he was he was studying the Kalevala and, and very deliberately trying to bring that in. And I, I believe it even influenced his choice of material. Like, that's why he did the Native American thing in Hiawatha, because he was trying to, just as the Kalevala was attempting to capture the, like, traditional folk legends of the Finnish people, uh, uh, he was trying to sort of recapture, like, indigenous legends of North America, um, and he deliberately imitated the Kalevala meter in order to try to kind of do the same kind of thing, right? So, um, anyway, yeah, yeah, it's, um, that was, uh, that was, that was a big deal. Um, but, uh, good, yeah, Tillian says it really drives the point home that Tom is wholly unlike anything else you encounter in Middle-earth. Yes, and, you know, Tillian, I think that's one of the, it, it, that strikes me as one of the, well, I was going to say one of the reasons why, but let me say the same thing in another way. One of the effects of Tom's persistent and different meter. Nobody else really talks like Tom. And there are a couple ways in which that's true, right? That's true metrically, but that's, you know, as well as, you know, sort of in subject matter. No, there's, no one else is quite the same kind of conversationalist that Tom Bombadil is, right? Nobody acts quite exactly like Tom Bombadil does in Middle Earth. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, you know, it's, I think that Tolkien, in borrowing from the, um, and borrowing from the Kalevala as as directly as he does uh, in in the forming of Tom Bombadil's verse and speech, uh, I think that Tolkien is just kind of setting him apart. He's designed to f- sort of feel different, just like Finnish and Finnish verse feels different <laughs> from every other language. Right? It's one of the things that Tolkien loved about Finnish uh, and the Kalevala. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Finnish language is one of the, 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 the couple languages in the entire world which is independent, which is not 
connection. So, you know, he was very interested uh, in, of course, the historical connection among all the different languages. And uh, of all of the modern languages, um, you know, every single one of them, Eastern languages, Western languages, African languages, uh, all rooted back in the original Proto-Indo-European language, except for Finnish and Estonian. So, I mean, it's 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 um, it the language uh, is like refreshingly different, right? Uh, a completely different language tree from every other language surrounding it. Um, so again, I think it's one of the things that told one of the reasons that Tolkien loved it. He loved the sound of it. He just loved it aesthetically. Um, and of course, it, the aesthetics of Finnish are the aesthetics generally uh, of uh, of of Quenya. Quenya, you know, it's funny. My uh, my nephew uh, did a did a study abroad semester uh, in Finland, the winter semester, because. Uh, 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 you know, he thought that was a good idea, um, and uh, so you know, he he didn't like re- return home a, a fluent Finnish speaker by any means, but he'd been listening to people speak Finnish, you know, around him for several months, and I just read him some Quenya, uh, and 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 it was and you know his reaction to it was like. I, I can't quite make that out. I'm like, well, no, I'd be surprised if you could. It's not Finnish. It's it's uh, it's Elvish, but he mistook it for Finnish. I mean, it sounds like Finnish again. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so it, we you know gone for a long time about Tolkien and his uh, and his love of Finnish. Uh, but uh, but again, but just so as so Finnish is to the other European languages as Tom Bombadil is to the rest of the characters in the Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways that's really kind of true um, but um, anyway yeah see JJ says it's interesting JJ says uh, uh, he was wanting to confirm that I was saying that I think the tone should go down the, the melodic tone should go down at the end of the lines and he says no matter how I try to sing it the lines just naturally want to rise at the end for me and JJ I would say the reason for that is that as most English speakers you're used to hearing and thinking things and I am so that's I mean like trochee is really unusual um uh, it is uh, it is it is not at all a common um, uh, verse form. Uh, for instance, like Dr. Seuss uses almost entirely iams and anapest. He loves anapest, like in the Sneetches and uh, um, you know how the Grinch stole Christmas. Uh, but uh, but of course, most of the, uh, Dr. Seuss is in iams. Um, there are there are there's I, I can only think of one. Dr. Seuss book off the top of my head that's in Trochi. Um and that's um, uh, a, a Wacket in My Pocket. Did you ever read that one? Uh, did you ever have the feeling there's a wasket in your basket or a nubbard in your cupboard? Uh, you know, that that's in Trochi. Um But it's it's um, it's it's different. Uh, even Dr. Seuss didn't use it that much. Um, but anyway, okay. Um yeah, I see. Yeah, Mungwe said it was probably my Cinderin accent making the Quenya sound off to my nephew. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, Gilguir, I totally agree. Just as a sidebar, if you want to get the sound of poetic of different poetic meters in your head and get a feel for the way that those kind of texture a story, right? Doctor Seuss. I mean, Doctor Seuss is the man when it comes to poetic meter. His poetic meter is awesome. I love it. Um, I taught Doctor Seuss 
used constantly. Whenever I was doing English 101 and teaching my intro to Poetic Meter, my intro to Poetic Meter was all Dr. Seuss. Um, nobody does it better. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. But let's get to content here. We've talked a lot about the, the shape uh, of Tom Bombadil's lines, but let's look at what he's saying. Last time, we were looking at uh, the content of his words and especially looking at his... Um, uh, especially looking at his uh, his the sort of nonsense words and the non-nonsense words and sort of the, the interesting fact that uh, there were kind of fewer nonsense words than we expected. Um, let's look at this one. So, what's the plot? Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling. Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. Down along, under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is. Okay, so notice for... So, okay, so the first two lines are kind of unclear, <laughs> right? The first line, hey... He starts with hey again, just like he did the last time. And I still like the theory that we were talking about last time, that hey, when Tom Bombadil starts a song with hey, that that's the... That's Tom... That's... that's Bombadilian for what, right? Okay, so um, he starts with "Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, my darling." So, who's he talking to? Come, merry doll. That sounds imperative, right? Now, come doesn't necessarily mean like come along with me, right? Um, again, like the "Hey" or the "What," right? It could be a kind of uh, poetic opening, right? Like, come along with me as I listen. You know, it's like sort of a general address to the audience, right? Come along with me as I sing my song kind of thing, right? Not like, actually follow me along the path. Um, and the My Darling, like, how literal is that, right? Does that mean he's talking to Goldberry? Gussie, that's exactly my question there, too, right? Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Arthur says, come at the beginning sounds uh, like an invitation for the listener to join the singer and be merry. Exactly, yes, exactly. Join me in the merriment, which is about to ensue, is exactly how I read Come Merry Doll. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Come and go with me. Exactly, Tom. <laughs> exactly. Um, so my darling... You know, is he the kind of guy that calls everybody his darling, right? You know, is this, uh, is this uh, you know, just like a general, like, a word of affection, like those of, you know, it's, is it a synonym to Mary Doll, right? Um, I, yeah. <laughs> Tony says, it seems, the song seems to be addressed uh, to all the mobile fauna within earshot. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Though I'm not sure, I'm not sure it's restricted to the fauna, actually. It may be the, the floral, uh, just as much. James points out that darling is in the singular, not the plural, which is true, um, but that wouldn't necessarily, um, uh, that wouldn't necessarily mean that it's uh, uh, a specific his dar that 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 it's Goldberry uh, exactly, um, yeah yeah um, okay light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling what what does that mean I mean like I know what the words mean right uh, the weather wind which is an interesting phrase in itself by the way and by the way um, 
I this is a theory that was put forward uh, by wonderful Signum alumna uh, and uh, current faculty member Sparrow Alden, um, who did her uh, her wonderful thesis doing analysis of Tolkien's word choice in The Hobbit. Um, one of the things that one of her many very interesting theories about Tolkien's word choice, and ever since she, this is one of those things that as soon as she proposed it, I was like, yeah, absolutely, this, this, it all, it all makes sense now. Um, Sparrow was was trying to make sense of the hyphenation, Tolkien's hyphenations, right? Because often, um, and when you look at it really closely, it seems a little bit irregular. That is, it's not normal English usage the words that he chooses to hyphenate. Um, like willow wand, for instance. Not normally hyphenated. Um, water lilies. Not normally hyphenated, actually. right? Um, and so some people have called his hyphenations inconsistent, uh, which is tempting. One thing that I have generally found uh, is that if people... St- when you hear people say, like, Tolkien's usage of this is 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 irregular and inconsistent. Pay attention to that, because actually that probably means that there's a thoughtful pattern behind it, because Tolkien's not real, you know, um, negligent when it comes to his word usage and pronun- pronunciations and things like that. Um, so, uh, exactly, uh, uh, Charles and uh, Tony, I, that's a, a Sparrow's theory. It's n- not quite like a Kenning. Um, Sparrow's theory is that, essentially, the words that he has hyphenated, um, the hyphenation is designed to represent a sort of a modern English equivalent of a term for which there would have been a single word in the original, right? So when Tolkien is thinking in terms of the Middle-earth languages, whether it's Elvish or whether it's Westron or any of the other languages of Middle-earth, none of which are English, of course, all the modern English in the book is just a translation uh, of those other languages, that basically these sort of concepts, which Tolkien conceives of as having a separate vocabulary. There's a word for that, right? So there's a word for willow wand, one word, right? We we don't have a word for willow wand. Apparently they do, right? Or water lilies, right? We we just have the word lilies, and these particular uh, other flowers we call water lilies. Well, that's not actually very accurate, because they're not really lilies, exactly. Um, But, um, uh, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, so, um, uh, we, um, uh, anyway, so, so the, uh, Sparrow's theory is that when he hyphenates words like that, uh, it is, uh, to sort of, to, to indicate that kind of a concept, which doesn't have a direct translation, that, that, uh, those hyphenated phrases are, uh, are sort of approximations in, uh, in modern English, and, I love that. <laughs> I love that. As soon as she said that theory, I was like, okay, you know, actually, that really kind of works for me uh, a lot of time. Weather wind is really interesting in that regard, isn't it? Um, I mean, is there a kind of wind? I mean, I guess like the wind that you blow or something, right? But like, for like, so this suggests, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a linguistic concept in which there are totally separate words. Because wind is a really conspicuous one. Thinking back to the, uh, um, the 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 significance of that particular pun uh, in Greek, right? Um, how the word wind and the word breath uh, and the word spirit 
are the same word, right? And this was a really important concept um, for Owen Barfield uh, in some of Owen Barfield's early linguistic work, which influenced Tolkien very, uh, uh, very much. Um, and you can see even like places where you can. So, uh, for instance, in in the New Testament, you like in the it, read the Gospel of John, and you see John playing with these all the time. Um, uh, the the you know the spirit bloweth where it listeth right uh, I'm quoting the King James here right um, speaking of the spirit of the Holy Spirit as if it were a wind because it's the same word right for wind and for spirit um, anyway uh, so that uh, same 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 kind of thing so weather wind meaning you know the wind that blows through the trees just to specify that's the word that Tom is using right when he's uh, when he's talking about that um, anyway. Um, yeah, Tony is suggesting perhaps they have uh, di- uh, you know, different words for different kinds of winds, uh, like a wind at sea, Tony, that would fill your sails might perhaps be a different, I, I assume a gale coming before a storm would possibly be a different one. Um, yeah, yeah, um, quite, uh, quite possibly. Um, yeah, yeah, good, uh. Erocheb points uh, that the Sindarin Sul uh, is said to mean wind, um, but it's transformed into weather when it's... Tra- of course, Amon Sul is, tr- is Englished, right, as weather top. Uh, so the wind element, the Sul element uh, in Amon Sul, uh, you know, the, 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 the mount of the wind or the hill of the wind, right, uh, is, uh, is, which is what Amon Sul would literally be, is turned into weather top. Right when it's made into English, um, so that is we do we can see that connection uh, in the text between weather and wind, which is which is interesting, right? Okay, um, so the the weather wind is going lightly, and the feathered starling is also presumably going lightly, right? Uh, why are we? talking about that. <laughs> Why do we care? Is this, a, is, this a, is this a news flash? Right? Breaking news. Uh, the weather wind is going lightly, and uh, also the starling is going lightly, too. Um, <laughs> Julia asks if there are, if there are uh, starlings that are not feathered. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I can't rule it out, I guess. Um, uh this sounds like this sounds of course this reminds me a lot we were talking last week about the similarities and differences between Tom Bombadil's poetry and the uh, uh, the elf poetry uh, exactly it's just what Julie was saying the tralalalali poem in in the Hobbit right they make exactly these same kinds of simple observation right your ponies need shoeing the river is flowing um, just observing the things around them and singing about them. Um, and uh, uh, that's, that's it seems to be what Tom Bombadil is doing too. Now, Carita points out there is, of course, the chance that the causality works the other way around, right? That uh, uh, Tom's, Tom sings this and makes it so, right? Light goes the weather wind, and there was, right? That's conceivable. Um, it doesn't sound like that. I mean, he's certainly not using the imperative. He wouldn't have to, right? But... Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Tungo is suggesting perhaps feathered starling refers to a 
refers to a like a, the mature starling as opposed to like starling chicks. Presumably, starling chicks would not go lightly. Uh, they would go with a very gentle thud, I believe, to the ground if they were out and about without their feathers or before they grew their adult feathers, right? Presumably, um, but uh, uh, but okay, yeah, I agree. Um, anyway, uh, I'm 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 comfortable with. Uh, with this as sort of observation, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Matt has a really interesting observation. He says that you know he he likes the idea about the you know the hyphenated words indicating a single word concept that's been translated, um, and he says it makes the shift from the nonsense words Frodo and Sam first hear uh, to something they understand, a sign perhaps of enchantment of the kind practiced by the elves whose song inhabits the listeners' minds. That is interesting, right? Um, This is... uh, If Tom Bombadil were singing in a different language, like the elves were singing in Elvish, but they kind of understood it in their own minds, notice how they're aware of that, right? Tom Bombadil is singing this. um, But I agree, there's... So it's, it's not the same. We're not told that their mind, like, remembers it, and we talked about this, the interesting, the significance of the fact that they heard it in Hobbit Meter, right, in the meter of all the other songs that they do, as if their mind were accommodating it to their own, you know, the, the enchantment of the elves was accommodating the song to their own comprehension, right? Um, we don't see that happening here. This meter is different, right? And yet, you know, Matt, there is still that possibility, right? Um, Weatherwind works in Tom Bombadil's meter, right? Even if it is something like a something like a translation, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, let's keep let's keep, let's keep going past line two. Down along Underhill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. Now, for these two lines, it's pretty unclear what on earth Tom Bombadil is talking about, right? Um, down along Underhill. Is he talking about himself? Where he's going? He's kind of... Tom is hiding the... He's burying the lead here, right? We, we're, we're not getting the, the... It's not until the fifth line, right? Like, so, what's under the hill? What's shining in the sunlight? What's waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight? Right? There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Um, I think it's Goldberry, right? Uh, that uh, that he's talking about, right? Goldberry is the one who's waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight, right? She's at the house, right? So I think it's her that he's talking about here. Um, so he segues, for, he starts with I'm um, like describing what I see and feel, right? And then he starts singing about Goldberry, which does support the concept that the my darling at the beginning is Goldberry, right? That he has Goldberry in mind all all along from the beginning. That he's actually singing to her, right? Um, Light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling. Then would make a little bit more sense if he's actually communicating that, right? Like, hey, Goldberry, so uh, this just in, right? News from further down the forest. The weather wind is totally going lightly, right? And so is the feathered starling, right? Starlings aren't falling out of their nest. It's the parent starlings flying around uh, relatively lightly, right? So he's not just 
describing what he sees around him and enjoying it, like the elves do in the Tralalalali poem, he's um, reporting back, right? He's uh, he's uh, 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 telling his wife about his day, <laughs> right? He's sharing. He's sharing. Um, uh, yeah, Lady Shmebuak wonders if Goldberry can hear him, which is an excellent question. I don't know. I wouldn't be shocked. Um, I don't know. Um, but notice he—it's not a—it's not a second person poem, right? He, there's no you here. He speaks of her in the third person. He's singing about her in lines three, four, and five, right? And six, right? He's, uh, uh, so for those, for those four lines, he's singing about her. There my pretty lady is, river woman's daughter, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water. Um, oh yeah, somebody was just, yeah, Freida was asking what's, what sort of description of a person is clear. Um, in what sense is she clear? And presumably that's a, uh, that's a, that's a compliment. Um, usually skin, I say usually thinking not of modern, but of medieval, uh, descriptions. Of course, the, the beautiful woman description was very traditional, uh, uh, and very formulaic really in medieval, uh, romance. Um, and clear, uh, was a, was a pretty common, Adjective to use to describe uh, the skin or the face or the throat, often the throat uh, of the lady. Um, as clear as crystal was her neck or was her throat, which I, oh, I it never really seemed to me really like what? So like you can see the veins and like watch her food go down? Like is that what you're trying to say? I suppose not. No pox scars, Tom. I, I suppose is what they're actually referring to, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Matt says that, it, that the whole thing sounds more like Tom's reflection on her than an actual address to her. Um, I agree. I agree generally. Um, yeah, Julia points out that Elbereth is also described as clear. Yes, yes, good, good. Um, and it could refer as... as uh, um, uh, Tony is just talking about uh, and Lynn as well uh, to her to her voice to her speaking right um, that also seems quite likely uh, okay let's keep going slender as the willow wand clearer than the water old Tom Bombadil water lilies bringing comes hopping home again can you hear him singing here's our first you right um, but I'm not sure that that's a direct address kind of you it seems a little more general than that. Um, um, you know, can one hear him singing? Is it possible? Is it possible for his singing to be heard? Uh, are you paying attention? Right. Uh, uh, those of you who are within reach of his voice, are you paying attention? Is kind of the more uh, not a direct like I'm talking to you about this kind of uh, you there. Um, notice the syntactic pattern. It's that's very typical. Old Tom Bombadil. Water lilies bringing comes hopping home again. Notice how he puts the uh, the the phrase right. Um, water lilies bringing is an adverbial phrase. It's modifying comes right. How is he coming? He's coming. Water lilies bringing right. But Tolkien puts that in between the subject and the verb, so that the subject 
of the sentence, Old Tom Bombadil, starts one line and comes hopping home again, starts the next line, right, with the adverbial phrase in between. Uh, We learn about the manner in which he's coming home, bringing water lilies, right, before we actually hear what it is that he's doing, uh, bringing water lilies, um, which is interesting uh, because he... uh, it is like, notice it's this, a similar kind of pattern, though it was even more pronounced before. Remember I, talk, I talked about burying the lead, right? Uh, up here, down along under hill, shining in the sunlight, waiting on the doorstep for the cold starlight. There my pretty lady is, right? The pretty lady gets delayed and delayed, right? That seems to be part of his, uh, part of his structure here. Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll, and merry-o, goldberry, goldberry, merry yellow berry-o. What's that about? Those two lines. Now, notice, after the first line, right, with Merry Doll and Derry Doll, um, Merry Doll and Derry Doll were the only nonsense words we got in the whole poem, right? We got very little. Uh, and remember the introduction said, uh, they heard him singing, but it was singing nonsense, Right? Except we don't get much nonsense. Um, this is these are our first nonsense. So Mary Yellow Berrio dissolves into something like nonsense, right? Um, what's going on there? How would you describe those two lines? And what do those two lines? What do those two lines show us about Tom Bombadil? See, by the way, if this were a real course and I were assigning homework, I would totally assign that for homework. Um, I would be all like, write a one to two page paper uh, describing what we learn about Tom Bombadil from those two lines. That's totally the kind of assignment I would, I would, uh, if I were feeling sadistic, I would love to, I would love to, to, to assign. Um, what do you, what do you get? What do you get from it? It starts off as a repetition of the first line. Hey, come, merry doll, dairy doll. So we're returning to the initial opening, so we're opening, what, a a new section of the song? So movement one of his song, at least the first movement that we hear of his song, has been contemplating Goldberry, right? And then talking about himself, but talking about himself in the context of coming home to Goldberry. So first he thinks about Goldberry waiting for him, right? And he's, like, telling her about what he's seen on his trip, right? Uh, About the wind and stuff. Um, So then he thinks about her being there, and he describes her, and then he talks about himself. He is not just talking about himself, right? He is observing the fact, celebrating the fact that he is coming home to her, singing uh, about bringing water lilies uh, to her. Um, What's he doing here? If this is in second movement... If the hey come merry doll dairy doll indicates a a beginning of a second, what's and Mario 
Goldberry, Goldberry, Merry Yellow Berrio. What does that mean? <laughs> I see most of the people in Discord are industriously talking about something else. Uh, yeah. Um, we get the... So some are speculating about sort of pet names, right? Nicknames. Um, I... That seems plausible. Um... But I'm not sold. Here's the reason why I'm not sold on that. Now, it's possible that this is just, like, affectionate, nonsense, lovey-dovey nickname stuff between him and Goldberry, right? Which is adorable. But I'm not convinced. And this is the reason I'm not convinced of that. Um, Because it's not been direct address. Um, You don't... Generally, you only do that when you're talking to the other person. Right? If you're walking around broadcasting, you know, like the little lovey nicknames that you say to your spouse, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> right? I just that's why I'm not convinced, because if, if the song were really addressed to her, um, which is possible, I, I can't totally rule that out, but I don't think so. I agree with Matt that he's contemplating Goldberry's singing about Goldberry's not singing to her, I don't think. Um and, um, uh, anyway, so he, um, uh, he is, so I don't think that this is like the, so like, you know, like when they're home alone together, he calls her Mary Yellow Berrio necessarily. Um, but, uh, it is good, Tungle, exactly. It's a, it's a synonym, right? Um, gold. Berry is yellow berry, right? That's he's he's riffing on her name there. Um Goldberry, Goldberry, Merry Yellow Berry O. Um Right? Um The repetition of the word Mary, right? three times in two lines. Mary Doll in its initial position and Mario at the end to rhyme with Berio. But then Mary again to tie all of the berries together. We've got four internal rhymes. Really, repetition as much as rhyme in that line, right? Um, but that repetition, this that's very Tom Bombadil, right? Gold berry, gold berry, merry yellow berry-o. It's not exactly a synonym, so again, it's riffing again. Right, that's 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 the best way I can think of to to describe it. It's almost like just saying her name many times, right? Um, taking pleasure in the mere repetition of her name, right? Um, and uh, but there's that merriment that runs all the way through Mary because it rhymes with her name Goldberry, right? Um, but also because it's essential to the whole spirit of what he's doing and what he's singing about and how he's singing, right? Um, uh, yeah, Tony says he thinks it's just, uh, it's just joy beyond words, uh, to express it. Um, 
And yeah, Arthur says back to the back to the uh, the scatting jazz singer image. Yeah, I get that's why I'm cool with that uh, idea, Arthur. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it 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 really is about him just kind of taking pleasure not just in the visual image and contemplation of her as he was doing before, right? There my pretty lady is, slender as the willow wand, clearer than the water, right? Thinking about what? Seeing her, hearing her, right? And the the, the, the beauty and pleasure of the sound and sight of her. But here, gold merry yellow barrio seems to be a savoring of the sound, the very sound of her name and the meaning of her name. Right, she is Goldberry. She is a merry yellow berry. Right, uh, that's that. So just like sort of breaking down her name and repeating the sounds and everything. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, of course, a couple of you have pointed out, which is really interesting, right? Uh, oh, who was it who said it the way that I was just? Uh, um, about Mary and Underhill. Oh, I forget. I missed it. But anyway, but in, 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 in saying Mary and Underhill in this, you know, he's named half of the Hobbit party here. I still don't think he's talking to them. I still don't see any evidence that he's definitely talking to them here, that he's addressing them, or that this is intended for them directly. Um, many of you, of course, are... Uh, are, are Tarlonio was just asking, Julia was just saying, you know, I, I, I doubt Goldberry is her actual name. It depends on actual, what you mean by actual, right? What makes a name an actual name? Uh, Goldberry is her name, just as Tom Bombadil is his name. Do they have other names? Doubtless they have other names. Other names they've been called by other people in other languages, right? Um, uh, yeah, Lady Schmebulak, I don't think he does know that they're there. At least, again, he's going to say that he doesn't know that they're there. Let's keep going. Poor old Willow Man, you tuck your roots away. Now we have clear, direct address. Now he's talking to the Willow Man. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening will follow day. Tom's going home again, water lilies bringing. Hey, come, Derry Doll, can you hear me singing? Okay. Um... There's no evidence in my mind uh, that uh, uh, that he's addressing the Willow Man in connection with the Hobbit's problem, right? Uh, he's just saying, "I'm in a hurry, right? Tuck your roots away. I'm in a don't give me any trouble." What he's saying to the Willow is like, "I don't have time to like get into a spitting match with you today, old man Willow, right? I'm not. Gonna, oops, sorry, I just got logged out." Um, uh, not that he's afraid of Old Man Willow, but that he um, is, uh, you know, he's, he's he, he, he doesn't have time for it, right? Tuck your roots away, Old Man Willow. Um, by the way, uh, my theory is that the, in, uh, uh, in, in the game, in the Lord of the Rings Online, uh, as you may remember from when we were going around the old forest in our field trip a few weeks back, uh, there, the, the animated trees have roots that come out of the ground and attack you. Uh, and I think this line is the inspiration for that, by the way. Tuck your roots away. 
I, I can't be bothered with you. I'm not saying that Tom is actually suggesting that Old Man Willow has like roots that come out of the ground and attack people just like there are in Lotro, uh, but I do think that, that lo- this line kind of suggested that particular form of attack in Lotro. I might be wrong about that, but it's an interesting correlation anyway. Um, Lady Shmebiwak says she didn't think that Old Man Willow would want to tussle with Tom. Well, uh, antagonism is traditional for the two of them. It goes back to the original poem, right? Um, so, uh, exactly, as O'Malley says, he did once, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, Sharon, that's a great point. Poor and old are sort of dismissive adjectives, right? Poor old Willow Man. Um, and that is, to me, uh, people often ask, why doesn't Tom get rid of Old Man Willow? Tom's a good guy, right? And he knows Old Man Willow is up to no good. Why doesn't he just destroy him? He could. Why does he let him carry on waylaying, you know, travelers and stuff? Um, And I think the answer to that is contained right in that first phrase. Poor old Willow man. Tom pities the Willow. He doesn't despise him. He doesn't hate him. Um, He pities the Willow. That's the very first tone that we get when he addresses Old Man Willow. Poor old Willow man. You tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening will follow day. Tom's in a hurry now. Also suggests to me there are other times when I won't be in a hurry. And then maybe we can sing together, even in a confrontational fashion, right? Um, yeah, he does show uh, mercy, Veronica, but I think even even more, uh, uh, even more pity there, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, evening will follow day. And I love that, right? This is explains why he's in a hurry, right? Because, of course, evening follows. It's getting late, and he needs to get home to Goldberry. Uh, but, uh, but again, the way it's described, evening will follow day, um, like light goes the weather wind and the feathered starling, right? And that kind of observation of the world around him kind of, uh, kind of mechanism. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Julia thinks he probably remembers Young Man Willow when he wasn't as bitter and angry. Yeah, he probably does remember Young Man Willow, who had so much potential, right, uh, uh, before he went bad. Um, yeah, yeah. Tom's going home again, water lilies bringing. Hey, come, Derry Doll, can you hear me singing? Now, the, the can you hear me singing is interesting in its repetition, right? We got that again, right? Can you hear him singing? Uh, we got last time. Um, the second time, the you seems a little bit more pointed, right? Not just general, like, hey, everybody who's listening, right? He's just been addressing... The you became pointed when he addressed Old Man Willow. And it still sounds a little pointed there. Hey, come, Derry Doll. Can you hear me singing? Right? Like, you know, you... You heard me, right, Old Man Willow? Right? Not if you heard me, right? You know, did, we're not going to have a problem here, Old Man Willow, are we? Right? Uh, don't make me come over there. Um, th- that it, it sounds a little bit more suggestive in that way. Not just, hey, who's, who's with me in my singing, right? But more of a, you're tracking with me, right, Old Man Willow? We're not going to have a problem here, are we? Um, yeah, yeah. Um. 
Juliet just juxtaposing Turin saying, now comes the night, with Tom Bombadil saying, evening will follow day. I can't. That just hurts. I, uh... The cognitive dissonance of those two images, I can't get over it. I don't think... I, I can't. No. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't. I can't do it. Um, but yeah, Tony, I agree. The last Can You Hear Me Singing there is an assertion of the power of his song. Uh, you hear what I'm saying, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's definitely how I hear that last line. Um, okay. Um, now, Oakwig, I agree with you that evening will follow day can also be taken as rather a profound statement, right? Because it is, it is a conspicuous... It's not just saying, I have to get home before evening, or I, I want to be home by evening, right? Um, evening will follow day is more... very, more gen- very much more general, right? Um, is that addressed to the Willow Man? Right? Um... And, you know, is, is there a sense in which that's also directed at the Willow Man, right? You tuck your roots away, evening will follow day, it's what it rhymes with, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, Juliet, now comes the night for you, right? Soon, you know, you've been around for a long time, you know, it's, I don't know, I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony said, it's like winter is coming. Sort of. Sort of. Um, When it's talked about... When it's talked about in Tolkien, though, in that sense, and, and Julia, of course, as you reminded us, Turin's use of it is the bleakest anywhere. Um, But it usually is kind of permanent, actually. Um, not cyclical, not like evening will follow day and morning will follow will follow night, right? No, when you're when you're talking about it in that kind of big, it's usually a, a sort of an apocalyptic an apocalyptic statement, um, like when Turin says it, uh, like in the end song, which we'll get to, eventually, um, yeah, yeah, um. I wonder, I wonder, uh, Sarah, if he's interested in cycles. I mean, yes, he is, in a sense, of course. But I wonder if that's what he's talking about here. I don't want to make too much of evening will follow day. Uh, The surface meaning of the line is clear enough, right? I want to get home by evening. Um... Yeah. Well, in as much as it, if it is directed towards Old Man Willow, at least apart from its relevance to Tom's journey home, it seems to be more apocalyptic and less uh, uh, merely cyclical. But uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, all right. Hey, let's do some prose. Let's look at, the, let's look at uh, Frodo and Sam's reaction to the song. Frodo and Sam stood as if enchanted. The wind puffed out. 
The leaves hung silently again on stiff branches. Remember, the wind had just whipped up, and the leaves were, were as like remember the anger of the tree as they after they lit their fire, and the anger which seemed to radiate out like a, uh, like ripples in a in, in in a pool, right? So the whole uh, that Frodo was running and he was crying for help, and there was that feeling of oppression, right? That he could he could barely speak, right? His own words were being suppressed by the uh, by the angry will of the tree and the forest. And it just, as when Tom Bombadil comes and he's singing, it goes, right? The wind puffed out. The leaves hung silently again on stiff branches. There was another burst of song, and then suddenly, hopping and dancing along the path, there appeared above the reeds an old battered hat with a tall crown and a long blue feather stuck in the band. With another hop and a bound, there came into view a man, or so it seemed. At any rate, he was too large and heavy for a hobbit, if not quite tall enough for one of the big people though he made noise enough for one, stumping along with great yellow boots on his thick legs and charging through grass and rushes like a cow going down to drink. He had a blue coat and a long brown beard. His eyes were blue and bright, and his face was red as a ripe apple, but creased into a hundred wrinkles of laughter. In his hands he carried on a large leaf, as on a tray, a small pile of white water lilies. "'Help!' cried Frodo and Sam, running towards him with their hands stretched out. "'Whoa! Whoa! Steady there!' cried the old man, holding up one hand, and they stopped short, as if they had been struck stiff. Pause for a second. First of all, um, uh, I don't even know how many times I read that last sentence without noticing what it said, right? Um, Did you notice this? He holds up one hand and they immediately freeze, right? So they're running towards him with their arms out, yelling, help, help! And they just, stop, as soon as he lifts up his hand, right? Um, uh, they stopped short as if they had been struck stiff. Um, so you know the absolute authority in Tom's command over them, uh, you know, whoa, whoa, steady there, doesn't sound like a command that must be obeyed, right? Um, but it, uh, but it, it certainly does, right? Um, and that's fascinating, right? Here we see his words becoming fact, right? We see his song making things happen around him. That clearly is a thing that occurs, right? Um, now. But, of course, you may say, his song? What do you mean? He's not singing anymore. Of course he is. Tom Bombadil is always singing. Uh, so I'm going to read, I'm going to start that paragraph again, and but this time I'm not going to do the, the part from the narrator. I'm just going to read Tom's words. Whoa, whoa, steady there. Now, my little fellows, where be you a-going to, puffing like a bellows? What's the matter here, then? Do you know who I am? I'm Tom Bombadil. Tell me what's your trouble. Tom's in a hurry now. Don't you crush my lilies? Exactly the same meter as his poem. Tom Bombadil always talks in this same meter. Now, you'll notice it's not exactly the same. Right, the rhyme scheme isn't as tight. Um, he, it's not. It's it still is there. Right, we we get the fellows and bellows rhyme. Right now, my little fellows, wherever you were going to, puffing like a bellows. Um, uh, but then we don't get it. Right, 
Um, what's, uh, what's the matter here, then? Do you know who I am? I'm Tom Bombadil. Tell me what's your trouble. Tom's in a hurry now. Don't you crush my lilies. We get three lines there at the end, right, which don't rhyme. Um, but, uh, but metrically, the rhythm is always the same. Um, <laughs> Sharon says that Fezzik from the Princess Bride would have been so happy hanging out with Tom. Uh, absolutely. Um, see, Sharon, you can imagine Fezzik from the Princess Bride saying the Goldberry, Goldberry, Merry Yellow Berry O line, can't you? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, I, I, I love Rob Inglis. I'm not going to complain about Rob Inglis, and, and his unabridged reading of The Lord of the Rings is my is my constant companion. However, uh, he doesn't do the rhythm, right? Uh, you know, don't you crush my lilies. Um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tom's words are always song, right? Um, so he sings, whoa, whoa, steady there, and they stop. They whoa, right? But steady there, I think, is really interesting, too, right? You know, steady there, it just, you know, is like an encouragement, right? Be, be, you know, don't go flying around, right? It is uh, steadiness. that he, he. So he's not just stopping them, preventing them from what? Running into him or coming up and clutching him? Uh, begging him for help, or accidentally knocking his lilies over, right? It's not just to prevent their forward motion. He also steadies them. Um, they're panicking. And when he, when they stop as if they had been struck stiff, they're not panicking anymore. Um, exactly, yeah, as uh, uh, Julia and... Um, yeah, as... Uh, uh, as Julia and and Sarah are, ta- are are talking about that, it sounds like he's uh, he's soothing bolting horses here. Yes, yes, like calming a farm animal. Sarah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. My friends are caught in the willow tree," cried Frodo breathlessly. "Master Mary's being squeezed in a crack," cried Sam. "What?" shouted Tom Bombadil, leaping up in the air. Old Man Willow? Not worse than that, eh? That can soon be mended. I know the tune for him. Old Grey Willow Man, I'll freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away, Old Man Willow. Okay. Not worse than that, eh? That can soon be mended. Um. Uh, uh. I love that. And, uh, yes, Tony, you are absolutely right that blue is the color traditionally associated with hope. Um, uh, and uh, that is certainly a thing that Tolkien would know. Um, also with the Virgin Mary. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I know the tune for him, old gray willow man. He threatens to freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away. I remember that's that's what I mentioned before, being very Kalevala, right? To to sing a wind up is just what Vinamoinen might have done. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I love that observation. Sorry, I missed the original observation that uh, Tony was referring to about the blue. Uh, uh, Rin Ruse has would had just said there are many blue elements in the description. His uh, his feather, his coat, and his eyes, especially, uh, and uh, that blue is the complementary. Uh, color to uh, uh, to yellow, tying him to Goldberry, and of course his boots. Um, but uh, but yeah yeah no it's, uh, the hope I like it. I like it. Um, Arthur, that's I was actually thinking about that. Um, Oh, Arthur, wonderful question. Arthur, I think you've solved my problem. Okay, here's my problem. Arthur, here's a problem I was having. I must have read this poem over like 15 times as I was, you know, getting ready for class. Um, Because it didn't scan right. Um... It begins and ends with Old Man Willow, or what? Old Man Willow, right? But there's an extra half line in there. Um, like, not worse than that, eh? That can soon be mended. I know the tune for him, old gray willow man. I'll freeze his marrow cold if he don't behave himself. I'll sing his roots off. I'll sing a wind up and blow leaf and branch away, old man willow. It doesn't quite scan rate doesn't quite fit, but you know, Arthur, here's my theory. Well, theory is perfect. Hypothesis, better. Uh, Does he take Sam's exclamation as the first half of his line and finish it? Master Mary's being squeezed in a crack. What, old man Willow? Um... Because, Arthur, it is conspicuous, isn't it? That, why doesn't a new paragraph begin with what shouted Tom Bombadil leaping up in the air? Um, Shouldn't that start a new paragraph? New dialogue, right? He does that everywhere else. Why doesn't he do it here? Um, Yeah. Um, I... So I wonder if... um, Tom is actually sort of taking and working in. Uh, and Arthur says that uh, totally fits our riffing jazz singer image even more. I can totally see Tom involving others in his song before they even realize it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, it's, it, it's a hypothesis, Arthur. It's a hy- I'm not sure about it, but I think it's really interesting. It, it is kind of like a rap battle, right? Um, and that's, by the way, it's one of my favorite things about uh, about rap. I'm 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 not a... I'm not a rap music fan, and so I don't follow. I don't know. If, I, I really don't have much time for following music, so I generally don't. Um, so I don't know anything about you know rap or hip hop artists or anything. But when I hear it, I really enjoy it. Um, I mean, I could wish they kind of sang about more interesting things than themselves most of the time. Um, that's the thing that I find most depressing about rap. I mean, it's not the vulgarity so much, though. That's cloying after a while. It's the fact that. Like, why do so many rap artists just sing about themselves all the time and not in, like, a happy Tom Bombadil, my boots are yellow kind of way? It's like a perversion of Tom Bombadil. 
that's it, right? Modern rap music as a sad perversion of Tom Bombadil's song. I like it. But anyway, um, so I love the way that uh, uh, that rap music plays with the rhythm of language, right? Uh, very, very sensitive to the rhythm of language. Uh, and um, I've always, fa- I've always um, thought that modern rap and its and the usage of the of of the rhythmic pattern of language, uh, because of course it's generally not. Um, I mean, rhyme is often involved, but it's much more about the beat. It's much more about the uh, the rhythm of a line, in ways which is like alliterative meter, um, poetic meter. It's not exactly the same, but it's kind of like it. And I, I've always wanted to. Do, I've never had a. I've never had a chance to uh, uh, to really sit down and do sort of close comparison. Um, but um, but also the way in which. Uh, the, the, the whole concept of a rap battle, right? Of sort of two rap artists kind of going back and forth and trying to outdo each other um, is very, very close, very like, very sort of medieval bard, you know, very, there's something kind of Anglo-Saxon about that, right? Um, and also something very kind of Kalevala about that. Um, so the, the whole rap battle thing is like a fun, you know, modern reference. But there's actually there's kind of something to that. Actually, I, I do think that there's something something deeply resonant between what we see Tom Bombadil and the Willow Man doing, and like actual uh, rap uh, battles. But um, anyway, um, yeah, <laughs> Raban is thinking of. Uh, Dr. Dre's new album, Yellow Boots, Blue Jacket. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so Arthur says that uh, he's thinking about my, my hypothesis here. Um, that not worse than that. Uh, the is sort of sort of a slant rhyme, sort of an assonance with squeezed in a crack. Um, yeah, maybe. Not sure it would scan quite that way, but anyhow. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I would actually love to. Hear, so. By the way, this would make such a so much. This, this would be such a great myth moot paper. Somebody needs to do this, right? Somebody needs to look at uh, uh, at, at 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 rap music and uh, Tom Bombadil. You know, what do hip hop and the music of the Ainur have in common? I mean, this 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 needs to happen. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, Ah, Catron is wondering if uh, the loss of the meter for, you know, sort of the, the, the irregularity of the meter in that paragraph might sort of express how exasperated he is with Old Man Willow. I wonder, Catron, I mean, that's an interesting theory, too, um, that he kind of loses his lines a little bit in because, of course, Catron, what I like about that is that it matches what's actually occurring. Right, I mean, he was hopping and skipping along down the path and singing his song, and now he he stops. Right, he's been interrupted in his song, um, and he's been interrupted by the hobbits. But like, frankly, it's the it's the Willow Man who's interrupting him. 
right? He just said, um, you know, he just warned the guy, right? You tuck your roots away. Tom's in a hurry now. Evening will follow day. And then what happens, right? He doesn't pay any attention, right? He's already messing everything up, right? And here's Tom going to be getting home after evening now. He's been all interrupted. Um, I think that that, um, I think that that is uh, very, um, that's very plausible. That's very plausible. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finn, I'm not saying that I think the music of the Ainur is rap music. I'm just saying that I think that rap music as a uh, as a as a as as a lyrical form, uh, it's in its the relationship the relationship that rap artists have with language is interesting. Has a lot in common with with Tolkien's poetry. Is all I'm saying. Um, uh, I think that that's uh, that's. And not 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 trying to endorse rap artists in general. And again, like the the thing that I really get super disappointed by when almost every time I listen to rap is I'm just disappointed in their subject matter. Like, come on, seriously? There's nothing else you can sing about. Um, what they're doing is really interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, no, exactly, Finn. It's all about the subject matter. So, so I just try to ignore the subject matter. Just listen to the rhythm. Um, it's sometimes hard. But anyway. Okay. Um, no, Oakwing, it's not the theme that's loud and vain and endlessly repeated. No, no, it is not. Because, well, okay, some rap music is loud and vain and endlessly repeated. I can't, I can't disagree with that, I suppose. Um, but uh, Tungle's shouting out to Aesop Rock. I've never heard of that. Sounds good, though. Uh, uh, okay. And Hamilton, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, rap artists recommended to me now? Okay. All right. All right. Okay. I'll look into it. Um, okay. All right. Anyway, let's keep going. Setting down his lilies carefully on the grass, he ran to the tree. There he saw Mary's feet still sticking out. The rest had already been drawn further inside. By what mechanism one can't help but wonder? Um... Are branches feeding him in? Like, are branches curling around and pushing Mary in? Is there something inside sucking Mary in? How does that work? I don't know. Tom put his mouth to the crack and began singing into it in a low voice. They could not catch the words, but evidently Mary was aroused. Remember, Mary was the one who was also hearing the voice of the tree, right? Who spoke for the tree, right? Who relayed the message of the tree to the others? And now he's hearing Tom's song, which the others can't hear. Um, it's almost like Tom Bombadil is speaking like in the tree's frequency here. Um, the rest of them don't hear the voice of the tree directly, though Mary, again, only the one whose head is inside the tree can hear it, right? Only the one whose head is inside the tree can hear Tom Bombadil's comments here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, let's see. Uh, his legs began to kick. Tom sprang away, and breaking off a hanging branch, smote the side of the willow with it. You let them out again, old man willow, he said. What be you a-thinking of? You should not be waking. Eat earth, dig deep, drink water, go to sleep. Bombadil is talking. He then seized Mary's feet and drew him out of the suddenly widening crack. 
There was a tearing creak, and the other crack split open, and out of it Pippin sprang as if he had been kicked. Then, with a loud snap, both cracks closed fast again. A shudder ran through the tree from root to tip, and complete silence fell. Um, Tony, great question. Um, is Tom speaking to Mary at first and not to the willow? I don't know. That's a great question. Um, why should he speak softly? If he's speaking to the tree, why should he speak softly to the tree and then speak loudly outside again to the tree? I mean, that second part is obviously directed at the tree, right? You let them out again. What be you a thinking of? You should not be waking. And then direct commands. Eat earth, dig deep, drink water, go to sleep. Bombadil is talking. Um, and of course, it's wonderful fun that what does he do to the willow, right? What does he sing of? Water and sleep, right? Just like the willow was singing to the hobbits. So he takes what the willow man, he takes the willow man's song and spins it back to him, right? But he masters it, right? He's the one whose song wins. He's the one whose song dominates, right? Um, his version of the sleep and water song is able to uh, subdue Old Man Willow himself. Oh, sorry, I'm doing a really bad job of keeping Narnian in game here during class tonight. Um, uh, yeah. And um, JJ, it is an interesting contrast, right? You know, JJ points out that you know his song, like Luthien's song, offers peace and relief rather than destruction. I'm thinking of the of the 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 woe begotten spirit line, right? When Karkaroth, uh, when Karkaroth is put to sleep, um, uh, Karkaroth. Yeah, I said Karkaroth the second time. That's his name in earlier versions. Too much history of Middle Earth, um, but. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but he, um, his song is like that. But again, remember, that was Old Man Willow's song. But think about the parallels there, right? Um, Old Man Willow's song uh, is about sleep and water. But it's a, it's, it's a deception, right? The, he's not trying to bring peace and rest to the hobbits. Um, he's bringing death. He's, uh, um, uh, it's, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a ploy. It's a means to an end to get them off their guard, right? When Frodo succumbs to both water and sleep, he's going to get drowned, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Amethorn, uh, is focusing on the you should not be waking. Great point. What does he mean by that? Um, is he normally dormant? And if he is, what woke him up? Um, It's possible. I don't think so. I don't think so. Because if a tree is meant to be dormant in any period, you'd think it would be during the winter, and it's not It's not winter yet. It's just fall. Um, I always took that um, as... Uh, yeah, sorry, I apologize. Like, and I sneezed before I could reach for the mute button. Anyway, I'd have to mute it in three different places. Um, my apologies <laughs> for blowing out your eardrum by sneezing. Um, but anyway, um, I always took that as much more general. Um, maybe I'm still influenced by the, uh, uh, 
poor old Willow Man line in the previous song. Um, but I always take it to be much more general. Um, you should not be waking, right? Like it, you should like you need to re-examine your life, old man Willow. Right? Like what you're doing, this ain't right, old man Willow. Like you shouldn't be acting this way. Um, this this act of attention that you are giving to these hobbits that are wandering through, like you shouldn't be doing this. Um, go to sleep. Um, yeah, <laughs> Julie says Tom Bombadil is uh, Old Man Willow's life coach. Yeah, more like that. More like that. Um, um, uh, I think that that's 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 at least that, that's that's how I've always taken um, those uh, that line there. Uh, so you should not be waking. Not like you know. You should not be waking. It's Tuesday, right? It, not that. Or you should not be waking. It's September, um, but rather, you you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing this at all. Let's be blunt, right? You're a tree. Could you act more like a tree, please? Because notice what does he tell him to do? Eat earth, dig deep, drink water, go to sleep, right? Act like a tree for crying out loud, right? Grow up, old man Willow. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's 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 the way I've always I've always uh, taken that. Bombadil is talking. Um, can you hear me singing, man? Can you hear me singing? I I I, I think you can. Um, and then complete silence falls. The willow goes to sleep. Thank you," said the hobbits one after the other. Tom Bombadil burst out laughing. "'Well, my little fellows,' said he, stooping so that he peered into their faces, "'you shall come home with me. The table is all laden, with yellow cream, honeycomb, and white bread and butter. Goldberry is waiting. Time enough for questions around the supper table. You follow after me as quick as you are able.' With that he picked up his lilies, and then with a beckoning wave of his hand went hopping and dancing along the path eastward, still singing loudly and nonsensically. Too surprised and too relieved to talk, the hobbits followed after him as fast as they could, but that was not fast enough. Tom soon disappeared in front of them, and the noise of his singing got fainter and further away. Suddenly his voice came floating back to them in a loud halloo. Okay. Um. So, they thank him, and he invites them to his home. You shall come home with me, right? Not, would you like to come to my house? Or, I would like it if you came to my... But this is a a prediction, right? You shall come home with me. This is a statement of fact. This is what's going to happen now. You shall come home with me. And then another statement of fact. The table is all laden with yellow cream, honeycomb, white bread, and butter. Um, and that line is a line... Out of, directly, as I mentioned before, directly out of the original poem, it is a line describing what they had at the wedding feast for Goldberry and Tom Bombadil. And nothing uh, more perfectly captures the evergreen love of Goldberry and Tom Bombadil than that they're, uh, they're continually uh, 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 sort of having their wedding feast over and over again every night and serving it uh, uh, to, their, uh, uh, to their guests. Um, 
Uh-oh. I think all of a sudden I'm by myself. I'm in the wrong uh, layer. I'll have to fix that in a minute. That's really funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we'll get that adjusted. Trish, I'm going to need help with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, thank you. Salonis, I appreciate that. Okay. So he invites them to dinner, but then immediately puts things off. Goldberry is waiting. That's a promise, I think, right? Um, that Goldberry is waiting for them. And then time enough for questions around the supper table. So it's we're, we're not going to talk now, right? You follow after me as quick as you are able. Okay, you follow after me as quick as you are able. With that, he picks up his lilies and off he goes, right? He invites them again, beckons them to come after him, right? Um, and then off he goes, dancing into the woods, right? Um, inviting them to come along with him. Uh, but not um, waiting for them, right? Why do you think that is? And yes, you guys are right, uh, those of you who are recalling and, and, and saying this sounds a lot like what they ate at Bjorn's house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, your basic woodland vegetarian fare, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, why doesn't Tom wait for them? Why doesn't Tom accompany them to his house, do you think? Well, let's listen to his song. As he continues on, what does he sing? Hop along, my little friends, up the withy window. Tom's going on ahead, candles for to kindle. Down west sinks the sun, soon you will be groping. When the night shadows fall, then the door will open. Out of the window panes, light will twinkle yellow. Fear no alder black, heed no hoary willow. Fear neither root nor bough, Tom goes on before you. Hey, now, merry doll, we'll be waiting for you. Okay, what do we get? He's singing explicitly to the hobbits now, right? Hop along, my little friends. He gives them a, a instructions first, right? Hop along up the withy window, right here, directions, right? Go upstream, uh, up the path, right down the direction I went. Tom's going on ahead, candles for to kindle. Down west sinks the sun. Soon you will be groping. Uh, another prediction. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, Right? Because, you know, evening follows day, FYI, right? So, um, down west sinks the sun, soon you will be groping. When the night shadows fall, then the door will open. Out of the window panes, light will twinkle yellow. Fear no alder black, heed no hoary willow. Fear neither root nor bough, Tom goes on before you. Hey now, merry doll, we'll be waiting for you. He does suggest, Julia, that he's make, that he's making their path safe. Gilglir, yes, and Tungol. He's preparing their way. Yes. Now, again, presumably he could do the same at least as well by accompanying them himself, right? But that's not how he does it. He tells them it's going to be good. Night's going to fall, right? The night shadows. Notice the hyphenation of night shadows. I love that, 
right? Different kinds of shadows. Night shadow, it's not the same word. It's not the same thing as like the shadow of your, your shadow cast by the sun, right? A night shadow is different, right? So when the night shadows fall, the door will open. The light will twinkle yellow out of the window panes, right? Fear no alder black, heed no hoary willow, fear neither root nor bough. Um, <laughs> Tarloniel thinks he's going on to prepare the guest rooms and the water hot. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think. Uh, I don't think it's it's housekeeping that Tom is going on to do. Notice what he describes. Your dark is coming, right? Evening will follow day, and you're going to be scared. Notice he's describing what goes back through the whole first half of this chapter, right? As they're walking on the path through the woods, uh, and the alders and the willows um, are uh, are funneling them places and pressing in on them and, and oppressing them at times, right? Um, fear neither root nor bough. Like the root that almost drowned you or the bough that almost crushed you earlier on, don't fear them. So he has them going on a path which is potentially just as dangerous and rather more scary, because at night, right? Um, than they have been going down in the day, but with the difference. A, down this path, which I'm preparing for you, right? Which, it's my path, right? He makes it. This is a bombadil path, not a tree path. Um, the the door is open at the end of it. Light, tw- Yellow light twinkling out of the windows is what's awaiting you down this path, right? So not a, I hope that this leads us out of the forest. You can, I'm telling you, what you're going to see at the end, and it's going to be great, right? And it's going to, there's going to be dinner, right? And it's going to be warm and comforting. Tom goes on before you. We'll be waiting for you. Um, the more I've thought about this, the more I think that this is a very significant choice that Tom makes. He lets them go on their own. Um, he doesn't walk them. To his house. He invites them to... He prepares the way to his house. He promises them that the trees aren't going to mess with them anymore. The problems they've been having with trees all day, they're not going to have those problems anymore. They might be afraid they're going to have those problems. It's going to be dark. It's going to be scary. But they can persevere. Right? Um, don't pay any heed to any willow, howsoever hoary. Right? Um, look what actually happens after that the hobbits heard no more almost at once the sun seemed to sink into the trees behind them they thought of the slanting light of evening glittering on the brandywine river and the windows of buckleberry beginning to gleam with hundreds of lights Right, this is what they're thinking of when they're thinking of a welcoming end to their journey. Right, they're remembering back. Oh, now the light, right back to the west of us. Right, the light is uh, the evening light is falling, and how beautiful and charming and peaceful it is back in the Shire. Right back in Hobbit civilization, as the evening light is coming in here, 
right? It's the contrast, right? Great shadows fell across them. Trunks and branches of trees hung dark and threatening over the path. White mists began to rise and curl on the surface of the river and stray about the roots of the trees upon its borders. Remember the mist? Remember the mist they saw still lingering in the in the in the morning in the pre-dawn or the pre-noontime day, right? When they were looking out from the bald hill and they, they saw down to the withy window and the mist that still lingered in the valley. That mist is... I mean, imagine... Just read those last two sentences and imagine how freaked out they would have been, you know, if they had not met Tom Bombadil, right? If they had not met Old Man Willow, if they just had the same experience with the woods as they'd been having and now this was happening, they hadn't made it out of the forest, right? They didn't get to the edge, into the forest. They're now going in the dark. Uh, great shadows are falling across them. The trees are hovering over them. The mist is beginning to rise and cloak everything. They are sunk. Um, are the trees going? Would the trees have done something active to them? Would the trees have started attacking them? Possible. I don't see any reason to necessarily think they wouldn't have, right? Would the hobbits have been killed by the trees had they not? I mean, old man Willow aside, right? Uh, it seems to me quite possible. But Tom has told them to heed no hoary willow, fear neither root nor bough. Um. Okay, out of the very ground at their feet, a shadowy steam arose and mingled with the swiftly falling dusk. It became difficult to follow the path, and they were very tired. Their legs seemed leaden. Strange, furtive noises ran among the bushes and reeds on either side of them, and if they looked up to the pale sky, they caught sight of queer, gnarled, and knobbly faces that gloomed dark against the twilight and leered down at them from the high bank in the edges of the wood. They began to feel that all this country was unreal, and that they were stumbling through an ominous dream that led to no awakening. This section seems to me, um, uh, this this section seems to me a uh, 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 an indication of how, like a reminder of what would have happened, what could have been, what might have been, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and Mike says he just thought of how convenient it is that Withy Windle is in Bombadil Meter. Yeah, it's a trochaic name. Yeah, not coincidence at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, interesting, yeah. Julia says it. Uh, it this r- reminds her of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice. They have to walk a frightening path and trust that Tom's promise will be kept but instead of leading, they are following. Um, yeah, I like that parallel. I think that works. Um, I don't know what to do about the gnarled and the queer gnarled and knobbly faces. I assume they're tree faces. Right? Probably. But if they looked up to the pale sky, so they're on a path right by the river, so if they look straight up above them, they can see the sky. And it's it's getting it's dusk, right? So it's not full night yet. Um, it's at that you know it's in, in, it's 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 in that uh, that time of night which uh, Tolkien called the gloaming, right? When uh, the sky is still kind of light, but you know the 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 the, the night shadows are closing around things on the ground. That time of night when you know if you're outside playing on the lawn, 
you still think it's perfectly bright enough to see, and then you go inside when the lights are on and it looks pitch dark outside, right? That kind of, that's the time of day we're talking about here. Um, and, uh, um, anyway, so they're looking up at the sky and seeing, because the sky is the lightest thing around, right? And as they look up, they catch sight of the queer, gnarled, and knobbly faces that gloomed dark against the twilight and leered down at them from the high bank and the edges of the wood. I would assume, I mean, the adjectives gnarled and knobbly um, certainly suggest that these are like faces that they're making out in the trees. Um, And I would assume that they're not... This doesn't mean that the trees actually have humanoid faces, but rather, as they're looking into the trees, they're seeing, um, like, their own... Like, in the half-darkness, their own imagination is sort of making the, the, you know, the gnarled tree... Uh, 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 trunks and branches into into faces, you know, sort of resolving them into faces, uh, staring down at them. Um, and uh, yes, Emma Thorne, that is exactly why the gloaming is one of the times of day in Lotro. It is abs. It is a major uh, Tolkien world uh, word, rather. So yes, when it uh, uh, when when the time registers gloaming, that's that's exactly why Tolkien loved the word gloaming. Um, used it a lot. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, Julia says, does the word leer always have sexual overtones, or is that a modern thing? That's a modern thing. Um, leer does not, L-E-E-R, does not have uh, have um, sexual, expl- exclusively sexual overtones at all. No. Um, there's a lot of words which in modern usage have become, are exclusively used in a sexual context, um, which were not, some of them which weren't at all used in a sexual context, some of which, uh, for some of which the sexual context was only a very, uh, like one single possible application of the word. The most significant uh, example, of course, is lust, uh, which just means desire. Um, and is used of all kinds of lusts, of all kinds of desires, and now exclusively means sexual desire. Yeah, Tony was just thinking the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, JJ. It's just like the Lyra attack in Pokemon, which is non-sexual. So there you go. See, in Pokemon, uh, they uh, they still use Lyra in the classic way. Very good. Exactly. Exactly. Um... Um, okay, let's keep going. After that, the hobbits heard no more. Almost at once, the sun seemed to sink into the trees behind them. They thought of the slanting light of evening, glittering on the bl- on the Brandywine River. And th- Oh, wait, I already read this. Oh, yeah, because I had gone back. Sorry. Um, no. Darn it! Oh, shoot. Well, okay. I just copied the same text onto this slide. I'm like, this, gosh, this sounds familiar. Yeah, okay, never mind. I'll have to do this slide next time. I was going to stop right after this slide. We'll stop at this slide instead. Okay, fine. Fine, there we go. 
I shall take my accidental screwing up of this slide, this slide as a sign, and I'll stop here tonight when they emerge into the general uh, area of the house of Tom Bombadil. Uh, so we will leave them there on the path being stared down upon by the gnarled and knobbly faces uh, glo- uh, that uh, gloom dark against the twilight. Um, okay. Cool. Um, all right. So next, so I said we're going to finish chapter six, which we totally almost did. Uh, we're like a paragraph, two paragraphs away from the end of chapter six. Um, uh, so we will, uh, we will, we will pick up there, uh, at the end, right at the crossing into the yard of the house of Tom, you know, into, into the area of the house of Tom Bombadil. So next time we'll feature the house of Tom Bombadil. Uh, and what happens therein, and meeting Goldberry, Mary, Mary Yellow Berry-O, uh, and all that stuff. So, uh, thanks everybody. So we're gonna, we're gonna do, I'm sorry I'm keeping everybody late. I've been, uh, irresponsibly, uh, uh, gone irresponsibly long here tonight. Um, but, um, I'm going to, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's field trip time. So let's see, I need to, uh, how do I get back to the layers here? I don't. Oh, right. Yeah, good call. We're going to even dim. We're going to go back to even dim. Okay, but this. But yeah, this time we're gonna we're gonna, so we're gonna meet at the same place, but we're gonna go off in a different direction this time. Okay. Now I'm on a hunter tonight, so anybody who needs a ride to even dim, um, you know, if you don't have a horse to get there easily or whatever, come on up here, and I will. Um, I will get you in a fellowship. All right. A lot of dwarves. Hmm. Not complaining, mind you. Lots of dwarves tonight. Lots of dwarves needing rides. Aha. Yeah. So, All right. I am now full. Those of you, I think, uh, those of you standing like to the right of me that I'm looking at now, I don't have yet. Greetings. But I'll come back and get you. So I'll tell you what. Meet me at the west gate. I'm going to take these guys, and I'll be right back. All right. So meet me at the west gate, and then we'll I'll take you in the second second wave. All right. And yes, Julia, we're on Arkenstone tonight. It's the server we're on. And by the way, next week is Gladden. Just so everybody knows, next week is right. Gladden. Gladden next week. Oh no, have I... I, I froze. Uh-oh. Oh, oh no. no. Oh no. Oh no. Been having some right. trouble with the game tonight. Ugh. All right, guys, stay there. I'll be right back. <laughs> there we go. We're, gonna have, we're, we're having an eagle party here in Tinnadir. Okay, so a bunch of people made it here to Tinnadir already. So you didn't make it to Tinnadir? Uh, something's gone weird with my computer. I froze, oh, and no. now I'm on like a weird screen on my computer. So I'm trying to get back there, ASAP. Um, oh dear. 
it's uh, it's uh, it kicked me out. But I'll be back. Don't go away. I'll be right back. I should still be in a in a fellowship. I'm gonna have to bring. Assuming I can do this, I'm gonna have to bring two groups. So um, you may want to like hold on or maybe form a fellowship or something so we can find you if you move out. I mean, a uh, raid. Okay. Oh yeah, so uh, uh, Maven is is standing here in Tinder. Actually, I think you did make it. Oh, I did make it. Did everybody else make it? <laughs> uh. Everybody that was with me. Let's see who I can't remember who was. Phoenix was with me. If Phoenix. Is yes, there, Phoenix is here. Okay, good. So that means all I need to do now is head back. I'll go back to Bree to the West Gate, pick up the second group. As yeah. soon as I come to life. And if you want to, or Phoenix to do this, create a raid, include me in the raid, so that way I'll be able to see you guys as dots on the map. When I bring the second group, I can bring them to you. Okay. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. <laughs> so you want me to form a raid? Or Phoenix, can, if Phoenix is willing to Okay, do actually, yeah, Phoenix, it. could you form a raid? That'd be good. Much easier if I don't include, have to do that. Include me, Phoenix, in the group so that that way I can find everybody. Okay, cool. Um, okay, where are my guys? Is this you guys here? Oh, there they are. There they are. Okay. All right, so somebody rate us up. I want to talk about where we're going to go today and what's interesting about that. Um, so, uh, okay, so in Evendim, we were exploring the lake this last time, which is cool. Uh, and I really, I really like the fact that in the lake, and oh, I forgot to, I forgot to sign off uh, my Twitter live, which is going to be much less interesting when I'm looking at the visuals in the game, which they can't see on Twitter. So I forgot to say goodnight to my Twitter folks. Bye, Twitter folks. Okay. Um, and, uh, all right. So then um, the lake. I was talking about the lake. Okay, so Lake, lake Evendim. I really like the fact that in the... Oops, better accept my invitation before it expires. Um, how in the in the storyline in the game, they make the lake itself into not only, like, the most prominent feature of this region, but into an active character. And they talk about, you know, sort of the... the, uh, the the relationship between Elendil and the lake becomes a, a thing in more than one sense, which is kind of cool. I like it. Um, and, uh, you know, so even Dim is not just like a happy vacation home for Elendil, exactly. Um, you know, he has an actual friendship, an actual relationship with, uh, with the spirit of the lake, which is cool. Um, but what I want to talk about today, tonight, what I want to be looking at, we're going to be going to the east. Um, so we're going to be heading out towards the North Downs and towards um, uh, and towards Fornost. Um, and um, so I want to be looking at the sort of the relationship, the shift from early Arnor to later Arnor. And I'm thinking about this a lot because, um, of course, I've been doing, as I've mentioned on several other occasions, I've been doing... Um, the uh, Treason of Isengard in my Mythgard Academy class, and we're just at the part of the Treason of Isengard um, looking through the manuscript history when Tolkien is 
doing the fourth and fifth. We're going to be talking about the fourth and fifth drafts of the Council of Elrond. And one of the there are two major things that are emerging at this point in the story uh, that Tolkien is working on it. And and those two major things are a Aragorn's personal history, which means also the history of Gondor and the Numenorians in Middle Earth, and that's uh, 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 still a kind of a new with the idea of the Numenorians has been around for a while in Tolkien's world, but what exactly their relationship was in Middle Earth is kind of a new thing. Um, and the Kingdom of Gondor is a, a brand new invention on his part. The uh, the other thing, of course, is Gandalf's escape and the whole Saruman and Isengard incident, um, which uh, uh, which yeah. So he he also just has invented that in this uh, in this particular section. So I've been thinking about the you know, as I'm, I'm I'm getting ready for class tomorrow. With that, I've been thinking about that stuff a lot, and um, I'm really interested in the fact that. Sort of historically speaking, as Tolkien was beginning to work out the story of Gondor and the Numenorians and the North Kingdom, um, Lake Evendim and the city of Anuminus are pretty late. Uh, that's 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 not where the story begins. Um, it is Fornost, Norbury of the Kings, which is in Tolkien's imagination sort of the original story of the North Kingdom. And in a way, that makes so much more sense. Um, you know, we talked about Anuminus as, as obviously not really being a military city, and it seems almost strange. Um, it does seem strange. This, it does seem a bit unusual. Um, one might expect a king establishing a new kingdom in a new realm to build a fortified city. In the end, I love this choice that, uh, that Tolkien made about Anuminus, um, and I love their, their reading of it. I think that their reading of the text, because they could have, I mean, there's no description of Anuminus, and no, no exact description of Anuminus in the book. They were making it up when they depicted Anuminus in the game, but I think that their reading of the text, their, their interpretation of the story is dead on with Anuminus. Um, it shouldn't be a military fortification. And I love the story that that suggests, right? The fact that they... Um, the, the, the story that it suggests is that Elendil, when he establishes his city, is establishing a new realm of peace. And why shouldn't he, right? Numenor has fallen, and that's a downer. But he thinks that Sauron is destroyed. He thinks that war is done, um, that, yes, they're grieving over their lost friends and kinsmen back in Numenor and for the island and, the, you know, for the land that they love and for their old home, but they're now finally safe and they're here to establish a new kingdom of peace um, that, you know, here in Middle-earth. It makes all kinds of sense that they would think that way, and I really love that reading of the story and therefore that interpretation of Anuminus. But, of course... Tolkien's original thought was, well, they're going to, they would build a walled city, right? They would build Norbury of the Kings. They would build the, uh, they would build this fortress, the, the Northern fortress up there at the top of the Greenway. Um, and of course, later on, the story develops about how that shift, right? The shift of power from Anuminus to Fornost, that's a fall, 
right? And it's associated with a fall. It's associated with a breakup of the kingdom of Arnor into three different warring Dúnedain factions, right? Of Arthedain and Rudaur and Cardolan. Um, and it's still the seat of the king, right? It's the seat of Arthedain, which is where the, you know, the heirs of Elendil um, uh, remain in the kingdom of Arthedain. But still, the mere fact that the center of power has shifted from the beautiful, peaceful city of Anuminus by the lake, um, with again that peace and love and concord between Elendil and the lake, right? Um, and instead, we're going to go and be in uh, uh, in in Fornost, in a in a in a fortress up in the North Downs. Um, it's uh, it's a fall, and I think that that's really interestingly depicted. And of course, in the game. Uh, as we will, as we see, and of course, as all of you know who have been playing, Fornost is not a beautiful place. Like even Dim is a beautiful place. So let's head out. I, I assume everyone's had a chance to get to get here so far. So let's uh, let's get moving. Let's cross the river again here on this lovely and obviously Arnorian bridge. Right, we can see the stars and trees on the paving stones. Just like in the paving stones of the Greenway down in the south in Enidwife, and many of the bridges we can see there. Okay, so now we remember as we go through here. I'm actually glad that it's nighttime this time. Dark for dark business here as we uh, head off towards Fornost. Um. So remember, we're still in the area where the different sort of uh, wealthy houses of the North Kingdom had their different settlements and towns and summer homes and things up there on the hills, which are still more focused on having a nice view of the lake, right? Like this one up here. Uh, I forget which one I'm looking at here, um, but uh, it's, it's it's not one of the ones that we explored before. It's up on the it's up on the mountain over here on the coastal side. Um, but again, this is not this is not up on the hill in order to be a fortification. This is up on the hill in order to have a beautiful view of the lake and the city on the other side of it. Right, um, that up top, that's the same watchtower that we saw looking down from the northern part of the lake. Uh, up there by the Gowradine, by the Wolfmen that we were looking at at the end of our field trip last time. Uh, so this is a watchtower, not really a defensive fortification. None of these are really defensive still. Um, but let's go ahead and head out here to the east. And we'll see more more of these kind of palaces and compounds. There, okay, over there we can see to the south of the road. Many towers there, right? But do they have walls and gates? Walls. Hang on, I gotta check this out. Uh, but we have, we have. Okay. Also, keep in mind if we've got uh, lobies, they're gonna get assaulted here. So, um, mind the bats. 
Uh, and the fearsome bar guests. Want to be careful of those. Uh, yes. As Dracula would say, the dogs are fierce. Um, was this a walled compound? Yes. Yes, it looks like it was. Right, this is a corner tower? It's got walls that's a, just a gap. Is this a gate? No. Yeah, see, there wasn't any gate in this side. No. Just a wall all the way along. Yeah. Yeah, see, so this was a walled compound, which is interesting. As makes some sense, I mean, you can see from its position, we're getting toward, this is the, you know, the, the road goes on the gap in the, the through, through the gap in the hills here. Um, so this would have been sort of closer to the frontier. So even in times of peace, you can understand this being made into a walled compound. Oh, we got some ghosts here. The first ghost, at least the first one that I've seen. Sorry, I'm trying to look at his hat. I think this archer... Yeah, I think that archer was a chef in life. That's my theory. More ghosts. Is that his helmet or his jawbone? I think his helmet. It doesn't have a bottom jaw at all. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Strong work, everybody. It's a gated community, Tony. Exactly. Exactly. So these... These tomb robbers. Are, they're kind of unhappy. They're all cowering in fear. Do they not cower in fear during the day, I wonder? Anyway, we're back out towards the road, yeah? Yeah, okay. Alright. So we get lots of ghosts in the field here. So why do we have ghosts? Why are there ghosts? And of course, of course the ghosts are going to get worse before they get better. And when I say why do we have ghosts... I don't mean what is the in-game explanation of why we have ghosts. We'll talk about that. Um, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is, why are Oathbreakers associated with this region at all? What prompted the developers to say, okay, you know what kind of mobs we need around here? Ghosts, right? We need, uh, what this region needs is more undead. Why is that? Because it's not just a random mob, right? First of all, the Oathbreakers are always important uh, in Tolkien. You know, that's not a... You don't just ran have random undead places in Tolkien. It needs an explanation. Um, nor is it something that you just slap into a region as a mob, right? Like, well, we could do goblins, or we could do wolverines, or we could do ghosts. Let's do ghosts, right? It's clearly not that. And you can tell, obviously, they've thought about it a little bit more than that. Because even here, as we get towards the edge, you'll notice the shift in the trees, right? 
from these trees over here, which don't look exactly happy, but at least are bearing leaves, uh, to these blasted dead white trees up here, right? Uh, which are dead, dry, and leafless. So, and as you can see up on the slopes up ahead, the hills themselves are green, right? They're not, it's not just rock, but this is, uh, this is an unhappy place. So I'm, I'm picking up some dread here, right? This is a wall. Look at this wall. This was a wall that meant business. This was the gate to Anuminus, right? Look at how thick this puppy was. That is a thick wall, right? But it's kind of funny because you can just go right around it, <laughs> right? I mean, okay, less so on this side, <laughs> I guess. So from the north downside, this is still a fairly good fortification, I suppose, right? Um, but again, you can see this is not a this is not two directional, right? This suggests that this area, um, the North Downs, this was the frontier in the old days, right? Um, Anuminous, the even dim section here, where we have our lovely you know, uh, uh, pleasure palaces and gated communities. I think that's Tinnadir I'm looking at straight in front of me there. Um, this is, uh, this is the main part of the, and it's got to be protected right from the frontier, which is out here in the North Downs. Um, and yeah, so we have these natural cliffs here. Okay. That's good. So from the North Downside, People aren't going to be able to come in here, and so that's why we build this huge, thick wall here and a gate to keep out whoever wants to be out. Um, and again, shows you how significant that shift to to shift the location of the center of power from Anuminus in the clearly like the defended heart of the kingdom um, outside the gates. Right? Uh, it really is almost like an entirely different you know, kingdom. Not just a, hey, let's make, you know, let's shift the capital from New York City to Washington, D.C. Um, this, this is clearly a very different kind of decision. So, uh, let's head out here into the North Downs. What do we get? Look! Tombs! Oh, yeah, we got some tombs built into the mountainside over here. Okay, so we're associating with the dead. But, uh, but did you, um, oh, so, but I didn't answer the question. Why is it that this area, hey, more tombs, why is it associated with ghosts? Why do we, why do they put ghosts in, why do we have, because again, like, they made us, they made up a story for the Oathbreakers, right? There are Oathbreakers up here. Um, so there, we have the, the, uh, haunted shades of men in armor, right? With armor and weapons, as we can see here, Right? But why? Why did they decide they needed to go ghosts and oathbreakers in this region? 
I seem to have lost everybody. Where is everyone? Everyone's still. Oh, everyone's hanging out up here by the tombs. Yeah. Hey guys, yeah, come down. Come on in here. Let's 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 head in towards Fornest. Shall we? Let's go to Fornest. Um. Exactly, Tony. That's it. And JJ. Yeah, Dead Man's Dyke. Um. There's a line in the book, right? When Barlaman Butterbur refers to Dead Men's Dyke, uh, which is what the Bree men call Norbury, call, that's what they call Fornost, um, he says, that's haunted land, that is. Now, he's never been there, right? Um, but as you see looking around you, this is what Butterbur was talking about, right? The land here is literally is literally haunted, right? We see the land blessed... A, 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 a curse is laid upon this land. It's not just the people, right? This entire land is blighted. Though, again, not totally blighted. Not completely. Um, there's grass. There's grass. It's not like the desolation of Smaug. Um, and notice also, look at the trees. Oh, yeah, this is the creepy girl singing about blood. Look at the trees. They've got leaves, right? What do you make of the trees? What does it look like? How, do you, how would you explain this? What we see going on here with these trees. Parasitic plants growing on them, Catriona. That would sort of explain it. But I don't think so. I think if we look closely... Yeah, see, these are branches growing out of the tree. I don't think it's like a vine creeping up the tree. They do look skeletal. I, I agree, Gilguir. But what's up with the green stuff? They are half-dead, but Amethorn, half-dead, means partially alive. <laughs> These trees in Fornost are only mostly dead, right? Clearly, they're not entirely dead yet. You can see this all the time, right? Haven't you ever seen, like, the, 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 the broken-down old husk of a tree? It might even be, it might even be just, uh, just a stump, right? But then it's got green shoots growing out of it bearing leaves, right? This is new growth on a dying tree. I do think, exactly, Tony, I think that's exactly what we're seeing here. In fact, I think that the trees up here in Fornost are a metaphor for the North Kingdom. Julia, you've got it exactly. It's, it's a metaphor for the Dunedain, right? It's a, meta, it's a metaphor for Arnor itself. Arnor is, is dead, right? It's skeletal. It's, it, it's, we have the the, the withered remnants of the majesty of the old days, right? Um, but it's not entirely lifeless. It still contains life. Deep roots are not, in fact, reached by the frost, Tony, exactly. Um, uh, 
the old that is strong does not wither. And even though these trees have mostly withered, and that's again also what I see if you look around, it's not just that these trees have, uh, are still sprouting leaves. I mean, that's true, right? But it's almost like the life is returning because you look around. It's not just that there's grass. Look over here. Look at this. Look at this little tree. Right? New growth it has begun. There aren't any, like, large, fully green trees. This one's big-ish, right? But it's, it's getting there. But this looks like what? couple decades old, maybe? A decade old? Still fairly young, right? Ooh, nice moon tonight. Um, I don't see any trees bigger than this. Exactly, Amethorn. I think this is designed to be foreshadowing. Um, the time of the North Kingdom is coming again, right? Uh, new life has begun to spring up here in Fornost, so you can see this is haunted land. And it's haunted by evil creatures and mean creatures like this bear. Um, you know, there are, there are like, the, the shades of the unquiet dead here. Uh, there are um, uh, there are, you know, the bar guests, you know, those uh, sort of ghost dogs uh, that we, that we see in the Barrow Downs as well, right? Um, but, and we, and, 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 and the trees show, like, there was a time when this place was blasted, right? When it was just dead. But it's not totally dead anymore. And it's coming back. And we see that even the old trees are not completely dead. I think it's really cool. Um, this, of course, that we're standing on is the Greenway. And you can see this is classic Greenway, right? Um, we've got, uh, some old images, right? Stars, uh mostly noticeable, but lots and lots of missing stones and lots of green growing among the stones here in the Greenway. But this is the very end of the Greenway. The, uh, uh, the, the northernmost end of the Greenway. And, yeah, Catriona, it does... The, the fact that these trees are white... Right with the new growth suggests even more that it's a metaphor for the Dunedine, right? Um, yeah, I love that it's called Norbury Gates to remind us that although yes, it's Fornost, it's uh, it's also it's called Norbury um, in Bree, right? Uh, and among the hobbits, uh, it has unfortunately been taken over by uh, uh, orcs. And wargs, as we can see. Amethorn, I agree. I really hope we'll be able to travel the full length of the Greenway. Um, I, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the game, basically they take out Tharbad. Um, you can ride the Greenway all the way here from Fornost, all the way down to south of Bree. But south of Bree, it breaks off, and you don't pick it up again until way down... Um, just to, to go to the map here for a second... Um, way down in in Enidwyth. so basically from from here to here, so the place where it fords the river at this this is where the ruins of Tharbad would be, um, and that whole section is not in the game, 
So you run into the, you you pick it up again here in Enderwyth where it where it comes in from the north, um, and then you can follow it down to the Gap of Rohan from there. But it's um, it's not. Uh, you can't do the whole thing, so I totally agree. I would love to ride the entire Greenway from north to south, um, you know, from uh, from from Fornost all the way to the Gap of Rohan. Um, yeah, I, I do hope they add Tharbad at some point, definitely. Um, so notice this is a fortress, right? Notice its location, right? Set up on a hill. This is, uh, you know, it's it's not like on a peak exactly, but you can just, you see how up here by the, you know, the, 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 the castle, right? The, the gates just command the entire land, right? As it, as it slopes down away, it's a, it's, it's a very good situation. Uh, and it's clearly military, right? From the beginning, we see these, you know, these thick walls and towers, um, and of course, the orcs have taken it and they fortified it with their stupid little palisades to make their little enclosures and their nasty, probably blood-spattered totems here. Their unpleasant decorations and skulls. We must decorate with skulls, though horned skulls—that's a little unusual, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's just a deer skull with the horns, right? Not like a human skull with horns attached to it. I don't remember seeing anything like that. In orc decorations, I mean. Um. And see, look at this. Main gate, right? Which leads you into this first courtyard in front of the second gate. Right? So if you do get into that first gate, then you are completely dead, right? As people from all around can fire down on you and you still have a second gate to breach, right? Classic, classic, uh, concentric castle design here. Look how thick these walls were. I mean, man, that is some serious wall action. Notice we, well, we, well, I was going to say, notice what we don't have much of. Decorations, right? Statues. But, you know, we have to be careful because a lot of it was probably lost. And we get the one big statue up here, right? Which was, who was this? This was Elendil up here? Sorry, just looking around here a little bit. And we st you still have to fight your way uphill. Because, look, there's another inner keep. You know, the main city can be out here and, and stretching around, right, and up the slopes and stuff over here. But then there's this whole causeway here. Which would be even more defensible, by the way, if we're not entirely made of stone. If we could have, like, a, like a, a wooden part of this bridge that could get thrown down. Where's the statue? Where'd he go? There he is. So who is this 
he's got no head and he's got no hand. I mean, his hand is down here, right? Um, but, um... Yeah, I can't tell. Is that meant to be a Lendl? Because it's interesting, it looks very different from the Elendil statues, of course, that we see in Enuminous. JJ's thinking they removed his head and hands to prevent identification. Yeah, yeah, it makes him harder to fingerprint, although fairly foolish to leave his fingerprints lying around down there at the bottom. Um, right, where Phoenix is dancing. Um... Oh, what was the name of the first king of Fornost? Somebody looked that up in the in the second line of kings. Like so, when the when the after the civil wars, who is the ninth king? Yeah, no, uh, Amleth, Erukheb. Yeah, okay. So does the. Does the uh, deed text, does the Phonos text, any, anything in the wiki identify the statue? Right, the first king of Arthodyne is what I'm thinking of. Emlyth. Yeah. Emlyth of Phornost. Yeah, quite possible. That's who that would be. But, uh... Ah, the dawn is coming. And of course... The night passing and the dawn arising is the perfect continuation of the uh, metaphor that we were looking at for Fornost here, right? And, and it's, the whole thing suggests a really interesting cycle, right? That is, first we have that cycle of decline as we were looking at in Enuminous, right? We can see the decline of the old North Kingdom when it ceases to be, you know, first... It, 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 it's it's first a kingdom of peace, right, and happiness and harmony with the lake, and then it becomes increasingly a kingdom of decadence and, like, one-upsmanship among rival houses, and then it splits, right, through civil wars, the civil wars being the natural result of that kind of rivalry. And then the, the smaller kingdom of Arthodyne, which now has to defend itself, so uh, we shift the, the center of political power away from Enuminous and over here to the very heavily fortified Fornost, right? Um, and then it dies and decays and becomes, at least in the legends of Bree, a haunted place. Now, there's no explanation given for that. In what sense is it haunted? Um, I think that Tolkien's implication is that it's not actually haunted. Um, that that's just the story that that the Brielanders tell about it, um, and that Aragorn suggests that it isn't in fact haunted at all. But instead, they kind of took that in Lotro and did a different thing with it and put Oathbreakers up here, um, and of course devised a whole story about how Fornost uh, was betrayed. Uh, by Oathbreakers uh, in the wars with the Witch King. Um, and I like it. I like the story. Um, and uh, 
I think that's uh, uh, I, yeah, I, it's you know, the way that they take those those kinds of things and make it into a story and, and a story that itself I think works really well uh, within the context of the Tolkien world as part of the whole overarching story of Volume One of the Epic Quest line. I, I, I think it's really I think it's really lovely. Um, but I love how they have these details embedded. Um, the like the new leaves growing on the blasted trees and the, the, the grass and the new young trees that have begun to grow. Um, even before the War of the Ring is won, um, you know, the, the sort of, the land is anticipating the, uh, the growth. I, I like how even here um, you can see the greenness within the ruins, right? Um, within the blasted remnants of, uh, of Fornost, after it has been thrown down and destroyed by the Witch King and his armies, uh, we have this nice, rich green uh, beginning to grow in around it. Yeah, yeah. But um, cool. All right, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna end here at Fornost uh, today. Um, we're gonna we may get back to the House of Tom Bombadil next time. I think. Uh, uh, for our field trip, so we may return to the old forest and see Old Man Willow and Tom Bombadil's house next week. Um, so, uh, so that'll be fun, and then we'll continue exploring around up here. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. Sorry I've kept you late. Okay, actually, I'm not all that sorry that I kept you late. Um, but uh, I, I've had a good time uh, talking about this stuff with you guys again tonight. Look forward to seeing you guys again next week and going on into Tom Bombadil's house. So thanks for joining me, everybody, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye!